Here we are in our second discussion on Christian praxis. Christians practically living out their faith and theology in a reflective manner, specifically when it comes to technology and faith. We talked a little bit already about how Christians can apply principles of interacting with the world, being in the world, but not of the world. We've talked a little bit about um, what it looks like to engage with culture, but not to be caught up in culture, to stand in culture as a witness and as a light. So here in this conversation, the element that we want to address is whether or not technology and faith, technology and theology can really truly coexist, or whether they're in conflict or in opposition with one another, or whether they're in harmony with one another. And just as there's a spectrum between staying away from the world and being totally immersed in the world, people are going to have varying opinions on this. Faith and technology, are they in harmony with one another? Or are they in conflict with one another? <coughs> Excuse me. So for this conversation, I'd like to see what we can know about theology, see what we can know about technology as concepts, and then put those together to see if we can build a theology of technology, to see what it would look like for us to stand biblically and culturally in the day in which we live. So we'll start with a couple of definitions, and then we'll ask some questions, and we'll dig into Scripture and see what the Bible can teach us on this topic. So first, theology. It is a Greek compound word made up of two words, the Greek word for God and the Greek word for the study of. So it's literally the study of God, studying God, learning God. So theology is the investigation and discovery of who God is, uh, the investigation and discovery of what he's like, of the things he does. And then the application, if these things are true, when we discover something about God, what does that mean for us? If he is above us, what does that mean for us who are now below him? If he is a healer, what does that mean for us now who are sick? If he is a redeemer, what does that mean now for us and our guilt? So theology is the study of God. It's really a, a journey, an investigation, a search into knowing who God is and what that means for us. This knowledge really forms the basis of everything that we do and everything that we think, even if we don't realize it. Many people don't think they do theology, but everybody does theology. Everybody has an opinion on who God is, on what God likes, on what God does. But that opinion might be based totally in their own preferences. It might be based in a culture or a religious background that they have. It might be based in something they read on the internet. It might be based on something they read in the Bible. It might be based on experiences they had or on testimonies they've heard of missionaries who've come back from foreign fields and shared what God is doing. It might be based on the fact that they've prayed a lot and have never heard God speak. Even atheism is a theology. Even those people who have done their investigating to whatever extent they've done it and have come to the conclusion that there is no God, that's theology, it's the study of God. They've come to the conclusion, based on their research, that there is no God. So everyone's doing theology. Everyone of every religion is doing theology. Everyone who is atheist is doing theology. Christians are doing theology. The way we do theology is we dig into Scripture to see the record, historical record of what God has done. We pray and interact with 
Jesus through his Holy Spirit engage with Father God in prayer and experience, and we gather together with other Christians and hear and learn from them as part of a body. So we've got Christians, we've got direct access to God through the Spirit, through Christ, we have Scripture, that's how we do theology. You can add to that nature as well. The Bible says the heavens and earth declare the majesty of God. They are His handiwork, and no man is without excuse because of what has been made that everyone can see being such a good indication that there's something more, a designer that could have made this perfectly intricate creation. So everyone's doing theology. It defines who we are. And it really has big impact, not just in what we believe, but what we do. So take, for example, that atheist person that believes there is no God. How would that theology impact how they live their lives? If there is no God... If there is no heaven or hell, no eternal judgment, no eternal reward, if this life is all there is, and if there is no God who establishes the criteria of right and wrong and good and bad and shows us what's good for us and what's going to harm us, if he doesn't establish universal truth, absolute truth, unconditional truth, if we're not accountable to him, then how does that impact how we live? Well, it leads to things probably like, well, what's right for me is right for you, even if it's not right for you, it's right for me, and, and this kind of relativistic society that we find ourselves in. It leaves us to feeling like it doesn't really matter what we do, maybe as long as we don't hurt someone along the way, it's fine. It leads us to have a sense of being stuck in who we are. Now there's no greater God that can lift us out of our sin because there's no redemption, no greater glory. It leads us to a place to feel like this world is all there is and that can be depressing at times. So do we see in our culture and society today uh, many people that have this sense of live for the moment because that's all there is? A sense of, well, I just do what's right for me. If it's not right for you, then that's fine. Do we have an increasing sense of hopelessness in our society that leads to increasing things like depression, increasing things like substance abuse? Do those things increase when there's an increasing feeling like there's no God to help and no meaning to life and nothing more to live for? I think they can. And I think our society is a living petri dish, proof of the fact that when your theology results in no God, no truth, no meaning, no hope, then you have a society that increasingly looks to entertain itself, to please itself, to live for itself at whatever cost, because there's no one to answer to. So anyway, everyone does theology, and it will impact how we live. And if I gave all those negative examples, flip them all just over and think about Christians now, what that could mean for us. I believe there is a God who can give us a hope. There is more to live for than just this life, even if this life is difficult. There is right and wrong, and it gives us a meeting point. So instead of conflict driving people apart, we should see God as this bridge, this glue, mending people together to his right and to his wrong. We see things like confession and repentance instead of just justifying our actions and you know, parting ways with people that we're in conflict with. So the implications are immense, and everybody does theology. We need to define technology now to see, does it correlate? Can it fit in? Can it integrate with theology at all? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines technology as the practical application of knowledge. 
right? You're practically, you're doing something, you're making something based on something you've learned or known. It's the practical application of knowledge, especially in a particular area. Or, another definition, he has three of them, it's a capability given by the practical application of knowledge. So now we can drive because we've invented the car. It's an application of it. Or, third definition, it's a manner of accomplishing a task, especially using a technical process or methods or knowledge. So we can do these things in this way. We now have this process. We have this capability. That's technology. But you see, it's based on discovery of knowledge. Scientists discover ways to look into atoms deeper, and so it explains more and more what the, the basic fundamental building blocks of creation are all about. But it's, it's discovery of knowledge which then provides the capability to do something. So technology itself is built upon the discovery of knowledge. And we who understand that God created everything can recognize that any knowledge is a discovery of what God has already made. And therefore, technology can be the way that humans discover the knowledge of how God's creation can be practically used. And when you think of it in these two ways, the theology and technology, you see, they don't have to conflict at all. Technology certainly can draw us away from God, but it's not inherently anti-God. The question just is, who made the stuff that we're discovering how to use? So we put them together. Let's, let's put them together and create a theology of technology here. A theological definition of technology could be this. Creating our own definition here. Any way that humans discover the knowledge of how God's creation can be practically used to make their lives better or easier or more productive. God's already made all the building blocks. We're just manipulating them. And when we discover something that can be done, it creates an opportunity for a new technology to be used. It can be used or it can be abused, but that's a secondary issue. The primary definition is application of knowledge, and if God is the source of all knowledge and God is the author of creation, then technology is using what he has made for new ways to make our lives easier or to make our lives better, to improve things or to make us more productive. There's some sort of advantage in this new usage that we call technology. Now, if we take this concept of technology being, you know, making things, there's an interesting point that we could observe in how we are like God. There's a lot of ways that we're not like God. There's a lot of ways that he's greater and different and completely other than us. But there are some ways that we're reflective of him, that we imitate him. We're made in his image. And theology has this Latin phrase called imago Dei, the image of God, which is used to describe what the Bible talks about as mankind being different from the animal kingdom, mankind being different from the plants and the fruits and the vegetables, mankind being different from angels, mankind being different from God. Mankind is created with a purpose of reflecting God, being made in his image, which gives us certain abilities and certain ways that we can be like God in a way that nothing else in all of creation can be like God. I think technology is reflective of this. So we'll give it some thought here together. 
Can the invention and creation of new technologies be a reflection of God as an inventor and a creator? He is the creator. He is the ultimate inventor. He is the designer of everything. He is also a restorer and a redeemer and a reclaimer. He makes things that have fallen apart come back together. Things that were dead come back to life. So he creates and he recreates. So when we create or we invent or we design or we restore things, we're reflecting attributes of God. That's what he does. That's what he's about. He is life. God is life. God is love. God is light. God is the creator. God is the redeemer. God is the restorer. So anytime we're doing those things as humans, it's a reflection of this bigger, greater version of all of those things. We're acting in his image. We're being like the creator. However, even at our most creative points, uh, you know, stretch your mind, the most creative discoveries of technologies, think things like cloning, think things like DNA editing, think things like space travel, you know, the big, amazing discoveries in technologies. Even at that most creative point of humanity, we are ultimately only procreating or sub-creating. We're merely using the raw materials God has already created, but we're using them in new and complex ways. So we may be able to even take the DNA and molecules that God has created and use them to clone humans or animals, but we will never be able to create atoms and DNA and molecules ex nihilo. Another Latin phrase for us just means out of nothing, the way God did when he created the entire universe out of nothing. God didn't use raw materials to create. That's why he is the capital T, the capital C, creator. When we create, we have to use something. We have to start with something. We may even create amazing things, but we're starting with the building blocks of atoms and molecules and chemicals and elements and all of these things that God has already created. We are not the capital C creator. We are small c creators, sub-creators, if you could call it that. And so we do create. We're reflective of his image, but we will never be God. We will never be the creator. And it's that approach and that attitude of humility that keeps us humble and keeps us wise in how we use or don't use technologies, in the things we invent or choose not to invent, in the abilities that we choose to exercise or refrain from because we recognize we are not God. Now, science and technology can be a very heady thing and can really inflate egos. Look what we invented. Yeah, but the capability for that was always there in creation. You're just now up to a place where technologically you can discover this or realize this. So God knew about that all along. He actually invented that. And back in you know, the beginning of creation with the, with the very first humans and animals, and all, that capability was there then. There just wasn't the advances to discover it. So let's not call ourselves creators and inventors. Let's call ourselves discoverers. We're discovering things, the knowledge of things in creation and how to practically apply them in new and beautiful ways. Again, this, this definition, this theological definition 
of technology is in harmony with God as long as we're giving him the credit for it. But we're made in his image. I think he's pleased when we use our minds and give him the credit for it. And we're going to build more on that in just a minute. But think about the verses where the Bible talks about us being made in his image. Just hear them from Scripture. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. So first and foremost, God has made mankind in his image, both male and female. So men are the image of God and women are the image of God. Together they are both the image of God. So clearly God is a pretty complex thing because men and women have so many fundamental and intricate differences. In addition to all our similarities, there are so many beautiful differences that both reflect God. Men reflect God. They're in the image of God in some ways. Women are in the image of God and reflect God in some ways. And together we both are the image of God. And we are meant to have dominion over this earth. We are caretakers and stewards of the animals and creation, the environment. We're supposed to be you know, environmentally aware. We're supposed to be, you know, have biology and ecology, all these things in our hearts because we've been created for the purpose of representing God, being His ambassadors, His images here on earth. And God said it was good. when we use technology in a way to reflect this relationship, this holy relationship. It honors God. It's what he invented us for. He created us to do this. So create, be creative. It's God honoring. But the humility has to be there to recognize sub-creation versus capital C, the creator and recognize who gave us the ability to create and to give him glory through all of our creations. Then you get the smile of God. Then he's honored. If we take it a step deeper, Jesus, God in human form, the ultimate man, the perfect sinless one, our prime example of what it looks like, as well as the actual redeemer of all mankind, all these beautiful things that are wrapped up in the complexity of Christ, Think about the ways that he was the image of God's creative power. Now, we might think of him as the image of God's love, the image of God's forgiveness, the image of God's grace, because we might think of his work on the cross and his resurrection as being you know, the only thing that matters in Christ's life. And they are the ultimate thing that matters in Christ's life. But think about the entirety of his ministry culminating in this great event. And you see that Jesus was doing creative works all along. Think about the ways that Jesus was creative. And perhaps not with technology, but with creativity, bearing the image of God. Because there's a principle there that we can draw from. Every time that Jesus healed someone who was blind, he restored them. He recreated their sight. 
Every time Jesus raised someone from the dead, he brought back what was dead and he gave it new life. What's the difference between bringing someone back from the dead, as Jesus did, or God bringing Adam to life in the first place? You're bringing something that isn't into being. What about the multiplying of the loaves and fishes? You're taking something and you're recreating it. You're multiplying it. You're miraculously showing the creative power of God. His resurrection then becomes the most perfect example of that. The culmination of all of this creativity. Him conquering death. Him being murdered for our sins. And saying, the creative power of God will restore what was dead back to life. That's making something out of nothing. And only God can do that. And since Jesus did that, there's our confirmation that he is the Son of God. But even before his ministry, we recognize the Bible teaches that Jesus was involved with the history of creation as well as the beginning of creation. You know, Christ, as the third part of the Trinity, as the Word, as the Logos, was pre-existent with God from all time. So let's not even think about just the earthly ministry of Jesus. Let's back up to the creative process of God and recognize that Jesus was involved in that from the beginning too. Let's not just limit his creativity to those miracles and the resurrection. Let's recognize the Trinity here. Colossians 1, 13 to 18 says it this way. He has delivered us, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." So what did Jesus create? Uh, he created the universe. He created all the spirits, everything visible and invisible. And he created the church. He invented it. He started it, he established it, and he continues it. It says he continues in him all things hold together. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's creative work. He's involved in the process of establishing creation, of redeeming creation, of sustaining the people of God, and ultimately he'll be the judge of creation, this creation that he loves so much. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is God. And we have the opportunity to be the image of God through Christ once again. That image has been tainted. And if you look around at the world, not many people, it seems, look like they want to reflect God. It doesn't seem like many people want to be like God. It doesn't seem like many people want to be the image of God. They just want to be God themselves. 
They want to define right and wrong. They want to be in control. They want to be the capital C creator and the capital C controller. Got to know our place, people. We have to know our place. Our place is under the creator, following the creator, reflecting him and honoring him. So this brings us to a test, all right? This is a test that we can apply to ourselves. I encourage us all, myself included, to test ourselves in this way. I encourage us all when we're thinking about technology to test it in this way. If we want to go to the broader category of just being creative, test your creativity in this way and you will see if you are fundamentally honoring God through your creativity or if you are rebelling against God and dishonoring him in that same area of creativity. We're talking heart stuff here. Same technology, but what's the purpose and what's the outcome? So here's the test. We're going to call it the glorification test. You want to apply this glorification test everywhere. The Bible doesn't necessarily condemn technology or craftsmanship or innovation or invention. It's merely asking us to discover whether its purpose is God-inspired or ego-driven. Is this thing we're trying to do brought about by God inspired by him, a God thing, or is it ego-driven? Look what I can do. Look how smart I am. So the heart of the issue, it comes down to pride versus praise. Pride versus praise. These are the two options. This is the glorification test. It should show us whether we or others or the technology we're discussing or whatever is all about pride, that's the ego, that's us, pride in ourselves, or praise, glory to God, and God-honoring. We can either elevate ourselves by thinking we are so advanced that we don't even need God, or we can praise Him for giving us knowledge and creativity and inspiration and our quote-unquote inventions, which should really probably just be called discoveries, because we're not really inventing something, we're discovering something that God made. Our discoveries those need to bring God glory. So pride versus praise is all about who gets the glory. Let's bring in one of our, our modern technologies as a perfect example here. It's maybe an easy one to pick on, but it has both good and maybe not so good elements, so it's a good case study. Let's talk about Facebook for a second. When using the technology, the communication and the the social technologies of Facebook. What are some ways that people either glorify themselves or glorify God? Let's apply the glorification test to Facebook. Someone posts a post. Maybe it's a picture of themselves. Maybe it's the nicest picture of themselves they could find or that they could take. We don't see many awful pictures of people out there on Facebook. Is there an element of self-glorification, of pride, in those pictures that we post? Or let's use an even more kind of Christian example, a churchy example. Someone posts, praise God, I had an opportunity to lead someone to Christ today. Someone put their hope in Jesus, and they just are experiencing this incredible lightness and joy that they never have before. Is that pride or praise? 
Is it, look what I did? Or is it, look what God did? You see, with these things, even just these two simple examples, it can be tricky to know. And that leads us into judgment. Did that person praise God for that or really just prideful? We can't know someone else's heart. So often it's impossible to know. But we certainly can look in the mirror. When we, when I post that picture of myself on Facebook, am I more concerned about how I look and how good I can look versus who I am on a day-to-day basis? Am I representing myself purposefully to get the praise of others so I can feel good? Or am I representing who I am? Maybe I'm representing God through me. When I post that praise report about someone coming to Christ, how do I phrase it? What words do I use? And did I put it on Facebook so that the world can celebrate people coming to Christ? Or did I put it on Facebook so I can look like a super Christian? Pride versus praise. Who gets the glory? Apply it to anything, any technology. Apply it to your cars. The car that I choose to purchase, that I spend all this money on, that I drive around, pride versus praise. Who gets the glory? When people see me driving by in my car, am I getting the glory or is God? And you might think, well, what does that mean? You're not supposed to have too nice of a car because then maybe you'll get the glory. I don't know. Where is your heart when you're making the purchase? Or how about all the bumper stickers we have on the back? You know, you pull up at a traffic light and you stop behind the car in front of you and you can tell how many kids someone has in their family, how many pets because of all the stick figure family on the window. You can tell what political party they support. You can tell what school their kids go to. You can tell what sports teams that they represent. And you can read a good joke. You can get all that off the back of someone's car. Do you see anything there about God? Is our car just like a self-promotion vehicle? Is there any bumper sticker on the back of that same car that just says Jesus loves you? Or maybe an ichthus, a Christian fish? Or maybe a thought like, you know, caring is key or some sort of value that can bring God's value system into people's consciousness? Are we looking to have the nicest car so that people can be impressed by us? Or do we just have a car? Or are we looking to be falsely humble and have a run-down car so that people can just see that we're such a humble person? There's no way to tell. And this is where we need to stop ourselves from getting into judgment. We cannot judge, but we can search our own hearts. Now, obviously, if you see someone obviously sinning in how they're doing this, you know, bragging about their car and about how much money they make, then pull that brother or sister aside and say, That's not how it's supposed to be. Give God the glory for your job and for your income and for your car. You know, obvious cases where someone is um, self-promoting on Facebook and it's a a sinful sort of thing. And you're like, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. But in all these gray areas where we don't know people's hearts, don't judge. Leave that to God. He'll judge. But definitely look inward. Definitely look in the mirror and see what God reveals to us about our own glorification test. Give the glory to God. Matthew 23, Jesus speaks to the crowds and to his disciples. And he says, 
the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant." Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the glorification test here by Jesus was applied to religious practices, things that looked good, people who were giving alms to the poor and people who were uh, dressing in you know, modest and you know, conservative ways and people who were religious in their behaviors and in their speech and their actions, but their hearts weren't right. If they applied the glorification test themselves, they would realize that their religion was all about them. They want to look good in the eyes of others. They love to be admired, but they're exalting themselves. So the warning is God is going to humble them. At some point, God is going to put the mirror in front of their face because they're accountable to him, not to us. And he, as their judge, is going to say, look at yourself. And they will have that crisis of faith. Am I going to self-sustain and continue on the path I'm going, even after I've recognized that it's empty and hypocritical, or will I humble myself and turn to God and redeem all these things that were empty and fill them right up with the Holy Spirit and make them solid? So Jesus applies it to them and says, we can do things just to be seen by men, but that's not of God, and that's going to require some humbling. But we have the opposite example in Scripture, too, and this is from... um, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 6, this is Paul writing about the apostles, and he says, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error, so he said we're not wrong, or impurity, we're not greedy, or any attempt to deceive. We're not manipulating. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext of greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul is saying, we do not preach the gospel, we are not planting churches, we are not doing these things to get glory or praise from men. We're doing it for God alone. He gets the glory. So Paul, the one who wrote so much of our New Testament, who planted so many churches, who God used, was not about himself. He was not looking to self-promote. He was not looking for praise from men. It's the exact opposite, the exact contrast from the Pharisees who were just looking for praise from man. There's even a scripture in John 12 where it says, many of the authorities even believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They did not say it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We're just supposed to care about what God thinks 
above all, at all costs. You know, put the Christian bumper sticker on your car. Bow your head and pray at the restaurant. Don't worry about what people think, but also don't do it as a show-off. Don't bow your head and make an elaborate pretense of it just so that people will see. Judge your heart. Apply the glorification test to everything we do. Apply it to your phone. Does your phone glorify you or does it glorify God? How do you use it? How do you not use it? What's it for? Your car, your home, the computer, Facebook, Instagram, all of these modern technologies. It could list a billion of them, but you get the point. Apply the glorification test so that you can see where your heart is at. And then God can use that technology, whatever it is, in a way that honors him. Enter into Facebook land with the intention of glorifying God. Create new things. Be creative with the intention of praising God through your creativity. Not with the intention of being praised or applauded or being impressive to the people who see it. All right, we're going to bring it to a close here with two specific examples that the Bible gives. It's two contrasting examples of this pride versus praise. And uh, one is the example of Babel, which is a place. And the other is the example of Bezalel, who is a man. And we just see clearly contrasted here the difference between pride and praise. So first, Genesis 11 and Babel. Bible says the whole earth at that time had one language and used the same words. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So there's technology. There's an advance in construction that happens in this moment. And then they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Well, so far, so good. But here, listen to what they say next with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. All right, uh-oh, they're looking to make a name for themselves. Okay, now verse 5 says, The Lord came down and saw the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Let us go and confuse their language so they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. I think theoretically, there could have been the potential there for that tower to have been built as a monument to the glory of God. Come, let us use this discovery of technology of bricks and dirt and, and mortar, things that we discovered from God's creation, to build a monument to the God of heaven so that the world will know there's one creator. It could have gone that way, but it didn't. They said, come, let us make a name for ourselves. How many of us want to start our own business so we can make a name for ourselves? How many of us want to get our way up the corporate ladder so we can make a name for ourselves? How many of us want to have the nicer house or the nicer car so we can make a name for ourselves? How many of us want our church to be a bigger church with more programs and a bigger budget so we can make a name for ourselves? 
How many of us want to lead more and more people to Christ so we can make a name for ourselves? How many of us want to publish a book so we can make a name for ourselves? The application of knowledge, the technology, is not the problem. The heart is the problem. And that's what Babel shows us. God will humble those who seek to exalt themselves over him. When we try to make ourselves the capital C creator, God says, oh, really? Let me show you who is in charge. And he will humble people like that. You could also look to the example of uh, Daniel 4, 9 through 37. This is about Nebuchadnezzar. I won't read it for us now, but just look it up and think about it. It's another example. Nebuchadnezzar looked at his whole kingdom and says, look what I've built. There's nobody like me. And he gets sent out into the wilderness. You know, his, his fingernails became long and his hair grew and he was crazy. He lost his mind. And at exactly the moment that he says, I realize that God is in control. His advisors show up and they say, your kingdom has been restored. And it says his sanity was restored. And he got up and he went back to the kingdom. He said, now I know there is no God besides God. So he recognized he was not God. And he says, God can humble or exalt anyone he wants. He knocked me low, but he has now lifted me back up. Because Nebuchadnezzar responded to that humiliation, that humbling by God with repentance and with acknowledgement. So even in the humbling that God gives us, he's looking to get the glory. And if we glorify him, he will raise us back up. But we have to remember that we are sub-creators. God needs to get the praise. Now, the positive example that Scripture gives us is from Exodus 31, 1 through 11. It's about this man named Bezalel. Let's think about this together. The Bible says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name, Picking this guy specifically. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, so the Holy Spirit, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for settings, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of the meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table, its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Have you ever thought about woodworking or setting jewelry or sewing as being spiritual gifts? Well, they are in this passage. We always think of spiritual gifts as this sort of like theoretical thing or hypothetical thing or mystical thing, you know, healing and speaking in tongues and, or the very practical things like hospitality or brotherly love. And we forget that anything that God's Spirit equips us to do for His glory is a spiritual gift. It's a gift from God. Every one of our carpenters, every one of our jewelers, working for God on His behalf to give Him glory, are working with the gifts that the Spirit has given Him. And in this case, God gives a special anointing on this man Bezalel to be a craftsman in his image, to create the articles in the temple 
that no one else could have. He was, he was like the Michelangelo of his day. He could do anything, and everything he did was perfect. That's the man you want building the tabernacle to declare God's glory. That whenever anybody looks at it, they're blown away. And they're not blown away by the name Bezalel. They're blown away by the concept of God that's communicated by that beautiful artistic and creative and inventive craftsmanship. Bezalel's a little-known name, isn't it? We don't often talk about Bezalel. Many of us might not even recognize his name as we started this reading. That's perfect. That's perfect. Don't remember the man who did it. Remember the God who it's about. It's not about Bezalel, but God used him. That's the glorification test in the positive sense. We're not trying to remember Bezalel. We're not naming the tabernacle after him. It's not the tabernacle of Bezalel. It's all about God. It's from God. It's for God. He's getting the glory. So it passes. It passes the glorification test. So let's pull it all together. Having thought about these verses, having challenged ourselves to consider these points, what could be our final theology of technology as Christians? A biblical theology of technology could be this. God gives mankind both innate abilities as well as spirit-filled gifts that enable them to reflect and imitate his creative powers. And when those abilities are used to glorify them, he blesses them. When they're used to glorify him, he blesses them. But when those abilities are used to defy him, he overthrows them and reasserts his power. Does that make sense? God gives natural ability and spiritual gifted abilities for us to imitate him. And when we use it to glorify him, he blesses it like crazy. And when we use it to build our own Tower of Babel or to say, look at me, or to do what we do to be seen by men, he will humble us fast. So our desire as God's people should be to stay humble, to be thankful that God grants us even a small portion of his creativity, and to seek ways to use our technology to glorify the God who gave men the ability to create anything in the first place. If we can keep these things in mind, then we will have a solid theology of technology that will guide us through the decisions that we need to make as to what level of involvement we should have in culture, what level of separation we should have from culture, and how we as Christians can represent Christ as a light in the world of technology that we live in.